our speaker tonight, who has just returned from a trip to the Middle East, albeit on vacation this time, mostly <laughs> I hope Dan. Daniel Brubaker is a primarily a, scho a scholar of Quran manuscripts of the 7th to 10th centuries, the earliest period of the book's existence. He defended his doctoral dissertation titled Intentional Changes in the Quran Manuscripts and was awarded his PhD at, at Rice University in Houston in 2014. Uh, since then, he's continued his work researching corrections in early Qurans. And to date, Dr. Brubaker has analyzed approximately 10,000 early Quranic manuscripts or manuscript folios in institutions and libraries throughout Europe and the Middle East and elsewhere, uh, Doha, Kuwait, Tashkent. Obviously, uh, the work with manuscript research is full of, of theological and historical implications. And I hope someday we can get Dr. Brubaker back to address that subject, which is not the one tonight. Uh, he believes it's important to understand that not all ideas are equal. All people are equal, but their ideas are not equal. And that Americans, uh, as Americans, we need to think carefully about the heritage we have in our system of limited government. Affirmation of certain rights is given by God. Uh, the embrace of the Bill of Rights, including freedom of speech, press, exercise, and religion. How we navigate our encounters as a nation with a system of belief that sees some of these things as illegitimate is the question Dr. Brubaker will address tonight. I'll also just point out that his Quranic manuscript research is forthcoming in print in the form of an academic monograph as well as two books uh, designed for a more general audience. That would be most of us. Uh, he is, uh, much of it is also becoming available through Quran Gateway, an online research tool for academics. He's a member of the Islamic Manuscript Association, the Association for the Study of Middle East and Africa, and the International Chronic Studies Association. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Brubaker in his address on how some Muslim activists are using speech codes to subjugate the West and how to respond. Thanks, Bob, for that kind introduction and for the invitation to be here. It's great to, to be back. I've been here only a couple times, and the last time I was here, Claire Lopez was up, and it was a wonderful, uh, wonderful presentation. So uh, it's a real honor to be here. I know that this um, podium sees a lot of really important people, so. Um, really nice to be up here and I hope it will be of some benefit to you tonight. Well, I just want to spend a moment to go through a little bit more of background. Uh, I know that a lot, even though it's not the topic for tonight, I'll tell you a little bit of what I've done and where I've been to um, fill in a little bit of why it is that I'm interested in this topic that I've chosen for the evening. So I did my um, research for my PhD at Rice University. I spent eight years there and I'm thankful for the eight-year cutoff because uh, you know, I might still be working on it if that were not the case. 
So um, I, I began at Rice. I learned. I had a couple questions already tonight about how I learned Arabic. I began learning Arabic at uh, in Seattle at a language academy, and then applied to work at Rice University, and learned the rest under David Cook, my advisor, sitting one on one with him in his office. It was wonderful to do that, and along the way, obviously, I had a lot of basic. Um, I should see a clock. Okay a lot of basic background in religious studies. It was in the religious studies department and also some more focused work in Islam, not specifically on the Quran and the Quran manuscripts, so uh, foundations, the classical texts of Islam, the Arabic, of course, um, Islamic culture and history and so forth. So I do have that background, although it wasn't my narrow focus when I decided to drill down. Along the way, I was shown some pictures of manuscripts by a colleague, uh, Dr. Keith Small, now Dr. Keith Small. He was uh, still working on his doctorate at the time. And one photograph that he showed me really stood out to me, and it was a photograph of a Quran manuscript that had uh, nearly an entire line, I think. Uh, actually, there are two photographs. One had a line, one had, had about a line and a half erased and overwritten on it. And I thought, wow, that is really something else. I didn't expect to see something like that in an early Quran manuscript. So. Um, to make a long story short, when it came time to choose my actual topic for my dissertation, I contacted Keith back and said, do you think that there would be enough in this to do a doctoral dissertation entirely on corrections in Quran manuscripts? And he said he thought that there was, and I made that decision and sure hoped that there were, would be enough for me to write a dissertation on. As it turned out, I wound up looking at about 3,000 pages of um, early Quran manuscripts, traveling around and seeing them, many of them in person uh, in the next couple of years, and found enough. Uh, corrections to justify a dissertation. Uh, so that was about 800 corrections there. Um, so I found it very interesting. Um, it was sort of touching on what we're going to be talking about this evening. It was kind of a striking moment to me when I first had access to look at these manuscripts in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. I spent the entire day amazed that they had actually put this you know, manuscript 1300, 1400 year old manuscript in front of me and you know, let me flip through it, spend the entire day looking through a very important early Quran manuscript. And then leaving the library that evening and going and getting on the train in Paris and, and seeing these um, uh, folks with the, you know, with the full, uh, uh, fully covered and a couple of young Muslim guys you know, sitting across from me on the train and realizing number one, they have no idea what I've been spending my day doing. And, but number two, realizing that the um, effect of these ideas, you know, it's not just a sterile pursuit. The effects of these ideas that was in these documents are still being felt in the world today, uh, in individual people's lives and, uh, and in the impact that those lives are having on others around them. So, um, so yeah, that's uh, just by way of a little bit further introduction. Um, as Bob mentioned, I just got back from Israel and uh, trip to Israel, and uh, we stopped along the way because Aeroflot tickets were the cheapest ones. We had uh, we we went that way, and my wife thought it would be great to uh, go and tour Moscow on the on the way since we had a 12-hour layover. So we did that. So in two weeks, past couple weeks, I've been to through Moscow, Red Square, um, the Kremlin, uh, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, um, all the. You know, all the Nazareth uh, south to Eilat and up to the Golan Heights and uh, Golan Heights. I'll mention that again in a second. And Washington D.C. Been, ba been back over here, and so uh, and so it's been a whirl whirlwind couple of weeks. We were up in the Golan Heights when we first pulled up there. I, this <laughs> so my wife asked me, "Are you taking me to? Are you taking us to a safe place? You're not going to take me and the kids to to places." Uh, 
this dangerous. And I said, no, Israel's fine. It's, you know, it's, it's all, the, what's in the news is worse than what's, what's actually there. Well, we pull up into the uh, Golan Heights, and as it winds up, winds up we're staying in a um, cabin uh, on a kibbutz that's two, two and a half miles from the border. And as we're coming up into the area, we see the smoke rise, rising. And as you know, it's been in the news lately. Uh, the IDF was gathered up there, and uh, the Syrians were making incursions, you know, up into the um, buffer zone there. So it's very strange to be introduced, uh, to be shown your room by your uh, when you check into a hotel and have them say to you, "Well, there's you know, there's the bathroom and there's the kitchen, and uh, if the fire, uh, uh, the um, air raid alarms go off, get on the floor." <laughs> so, but we made it through, and my wife was very calm on that. But again, uh, I, I tell you that also to emphasize that. Um, ideas have impact on, you know, we're just surrounded all over the world and in our daily lives with the fact that these things uh, that we believe uh, have impact not only on us, but people around us. Sometimes people have ideas that are, uh, or, or notions that are true. Sometimes they have them that are false. Sometimes they have them that they misinterpret. Sometimes they're very old, stretching back thousands of years. Sometimes they're just the trend of the day. And we're dealing with all these things kind of mashed together and it's one of, one of the wonderful things, actually, about our country, that we can have uh, that sort of environment where we can so freely interact with all these different things. But they're not without their, um, uh, their impact in the world for us and for people around us. So I hope this talk isn't disappointing to you. I'm gonna, I, I, I feel like uh, there are a lot of really sophisticated people in the room who have read a lot of sources and widely in this area. So I, I'm going to try and give. Um, some broad, it's actually not going to be that difficult to, to get because I think most people from even talking to you at the, at the beginning, um, these are things that you've thought about a lot. And I think that many of us as Americans have thought about a lot in, in recent years uh, as we see what's going on around us uh, regarding free speech and where, does, where do these boundaries uh, uh, lie with these things. But the talk is, con is concerned with basic um, elements of humanity that we as Americans consider to be God-given rights uh, and heritage of all people, all people, um, not only us, but uh, the right to think and speak one's mind freely, um, and even if this causes discomfort to other people. Um, we, uh, the United States is a nation that protects liberty, and uh, sometimes we conflate that with freedom. They're not exactly the same thing, but uh, liberty as a just and moral precondition uh, for human flourishing and the opportunity to pursue and encounter truth. Truth. Okay, so we, uh, and, and we do have that idea of truth, which I'm going to come back to in a second. We're the only nation in the history of the world, as far as I know, and somebody correct me if I'm wrong, to be founded on the principle, the biblical principle, by the way, that all people are created equal. And uh, I say the word people there because I believe that is what is intended. Anybody know why I think that's what was intended by in the Declaration of Independence? All people, regardless of uh, race or gender. I'll be interactive tonight too, by the way, so I just want you not to fall asleep. So, men was understood to mean humankind. Right. It was. It was used very often generically uh, in that sense. So that was one, certainly one of the possible meanings at the time, which I think is entirely true, and it's reasonable to read it uh, to read it that way. Anything else? Any other ideas about about that? Yeah. It's very doubtful to me that they included American Indians and our people. 
Okay. So I, I and I think you might be. I, I think you might be. And the, the comment was that he uh, there is questionable whether uh, American Indians or Native uh, peoples were considered to be uh, included in that. And I think it may have been the case with some of the people who signed the, uh, the Declaration of Independence <laughs> that they would have felt that way. The reason that I think that it included, that I believe strongly that it included all people, is, uh, is where it came from. So what's the word that comes right before that? Created. All men are created equal. Okay. So where's the first mention that, you know, what's that referring back to? Well, it's clearly referring back to Genesis 127, which says, uh, in the image of God, he created them. He created, created him, male and female, he created them. So this is the, the account of creation. And, and when, uh, when we, we encounter that phrase in the Declaration of Independence, I think that that's what it means clearly because that's the source of the creation account to which they're referring when they meant all men are created equal and endowed by their creator, in my opinion. But I think that's a pretty solid argu argument in, in my view. So, um, and we took some time to live up to that, obviously, as, as a nation. Okay, so <clears throat> as I mentioned, it's, it's very, fairly simple what we're talking about, and I'll jump into it in a second. But, you know, it's really important that we, uh, that we reconnect with this idea of liberty in our, in our country, and I think you probably feel that as well, particularly with the young generation. There was a poll recently that you may be aware of that 40% um, of millennials, I believe it's 18 to 34, is the millennial category there too. Um, a Pew Research poll that said 40% of them felt that it was appropriate for government to place limitations on certain types of offensive speech. That's a huge shift, and that's a huge cultural shift. Uh, where is this coming from? Well, it's coming from a number of different directions, but partly I think it's coming from what we're going to be talking about here. Freedom of speech and the right not to be offended, I think, and this is what some... The right not to be offended. Yeah, they're, they're two different things. No, I'm not, I'm not putting them together. I'm putting them on opposite sides here. The, the right not to be offended, which a lot of young people feel that there is uh, this, somehow this right not to be offended. And many Muslims, actually. Not all Muslims, by the way, so I want to make that cl uh, clear tonight, too. That there's a right not to be offended. But I, I just want to make the statement that these two are mutually exclusive. You, cannot have, you can have one or you can have the other, but you cannot have them both at the same You have to pick one or the other. With freedom of speech, truth can be uh, existing alongside a lot of untruth or other you know, competing ideas, but at least it can be out there. In contrast, a society that elevates the right not to be offended merely perpetrates a world of comfortable ignorance and feelings of victimhood. And I think the former society is the better place to live. Now, I think we're all sympathetic to the hurts of insults. I'm very, I'm really, you know, I get moved with compassion when somebody is hurt, and I think most of us do. But I've come to realize the necessity of facing truth and possible offense in order to maintain liberty and its wonderful benefits, because liberty is a, and truth are, are great benefits, and you can miss out, for, miss out on them if you start to go down this road of limitation. So, all right, so what we're talking about now is the dynamics of a civilizational struggle, which I think is a civilizational struggle involving patterns and contours uh, in the actions and attitudes of many people who are acting rationally, actually, according to their own preset assumptions about the world, about what's true, and about the way the world works. 
what is appropriate and inappropriate and so forth. At one end of the struggle uh, is the Western liberal tradition that lies at the base of the proposition liberty and justice for all. And, uh, sorry, let me get my glasses out. I actually do need these at this age. Just, just cross that age where I need these. And at the other end of the struggle is the greatest, um, what I believe to be at least one of, but possibly the greatest colonizing civilization in the history of the world, Islam. Both of these traditions are rooted, interestingly, in the proposition of a transcendent personal reality that is God. Both of them are rooted in the proposition of God. The Western liberal tradition derives its worldview and non-negotiable propositions from the Bible. And even though a lot of our culture and society today doesn't operate with that, um, uh, with that, uh, on that premise, we still have that as lying sort of at the root of what we are found in the idea of unalienable rights and so forth. So when we say we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, this is what we're appealing to. That uh, We're rooting that in the proposition of a transcendent reality beyond the world that exists, a lawgiver. Islam also derives its worldview from the belief that Muhammad was, uh, that, that God exists, but Islam, Islam derives its belief from the, um, from the proposition that Muhammad was a prophet of God. So that's, that's the root of Islamic belief. The core root, you can say, you know, the, the Quran and the Hadith and all this stuff too, but the core proposition is that Muhammad was a prophet. That is what, and actually, incidentally, I didn't put this in my prepared um, notes for tonight, but that's why the antiquated term of Mohammedanism is actually a much more appropriate description of, uh, of Islam than, than Islam, because Islam, does anybody know? I know some people here know what Islam means, yeah? Submission. Submission, yeah. So um, Muslims, uh, and Muslim means submitted, uh, Muslims uh, believe that they are submitted and implied to, they're submitted to God. Well, anybody who follows God, uh, you know, we would, you would say that you're submitted to God. So that's sort of a, a, um, a step further, but I think it's a much more accurate descriptor actually to use. Although Mohammedanism is actually a mouthful to say, so we'll have to find a better solution for that at some point. But my argument tonight is that Islam's efforts to restrict speech, expression, and conscience via hate speech, hate crime, uh, legislation, use of the terms Islamophobia, and um, incitement to religious hatred, and these kind of things, uh, is not consciously on the part of all Muslims, um, but is consciously on the part of some Muslims, and certainly following the example of Muhammad is, uh, is, a, uh, is an attempt at colonization and conquering uh, a new culture, and they, these are logical weapons of conquest. They're logical within the, within the framework of Muhammad's uh, life, which I'm going to go into in a second and uh, uh, tell you some of the examples from his life on which all these things rest. And uh, they're weapons of conquest in the sense that this is the way that Muhammad used them. Uh, rhetorically, he didn't, he didn't only fight with, uh, with uh, uh, weapons and horses and uh, going into battle, but he also fought it with, uh, with words and uh, with, uh, with rhetoric and so forth. And it was a very key part of what he did. And um, it's long been something that I've been quite interested in, actually. All right, so we had recently a... Uh, who here was aware of the Muhammad cartoon contest? <laughs> we've, we've, all, we've all seen that in Garland, Texas? Yeah. So a few, a few years back, um, 
So we've had a number of things. Actually, I, I want to just take a moment before we continue on and talk about some of the uh, incidents involving free speech in Islam in our cultural sphere uh, of, of recent years. So one of them was the um, Muhammad cartoon, Draw Muhammad cartoon contest in Garland, Texas, which resulted in, um, perhaps predictably, uh, a couple of Muslim guys showing up uh, trying to uh, kill everybody who was participating in this contest. It was organized by Pam Geller. Uh, Gert Wilders uh, uh, won the contest and a number of other people participated. Um, they had to hire their own security. Um, and uh, uh, the ultimate result was the uh, killing of the guys who had come out to kill uh, all of them. Um, what else? What, have, what else have we seen regarding free speech? Yeah, yeah, I can, yes. They can't be heard when they speak. Oh, I'll repeat the question. Okay. No, 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 but, but they can't. See, we have mics. Oh, you have a mic. Okay, yeah. At the end. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Just discourage the interactive. Oh, the interactive. Okay. Got it. Okay. So we've had... <laughs> I'll give all the answers. You can, like, interact uh, in other ways. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah, my name is uh, Jack. And the fundamental question, I was surprised that you got your dissertation correcting the Quran when, as I understand it from Dr. Riley's book, they believe that's directly the word of God. So if it's changed, yes. it wouldn't come from God. Yeah. It's a wonder that you're still walking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, that's, yeah. So I think it's interesting. No, that's, that's a very good question, and it was indeed a, a, a question that was in my mind when I began to go down this road. And, um, <clears throat> and I think it's actually really helpful to what we're talking about as well. Um, Patricia Crone, who uh, uh, Bob knows and a few of you know, she passed away recently, but was one of the really important scholars in our field, was speaking at Rice University, and this question came up when I was starting to think about my uh, going down and pursuing this topic. And I was asked in her presence whether it would be safe to do this. And um, I turned to her and she said, no, it'll be fine. Um, there's a certain space within uh, for academics to do this kind of work. And also, I think is. I'm, I'm asking questions of, you know, of artifacts and things that are there and um, <clears throat> not coming to conclusions that are polemical in any sense. Other people can do that if, if they want to, and some people are, are doing that. But um, that to say, coming back to our point, is, is, it is an example of the diversity within, within Islam, too. A lot of Muslims, particularly in the West, actually really do see the logic of, uh, of the freedoms and the liberties that we have. Uh, admire them and are, you know, in some cases really trying, Dr. Zidi Jasser, who I believe has also spoken here, are trying to reconcile these things with their faith uh, in Islam. So I think we need to give space to folks to, um, to do, I mean, we all need to space, uh, we're all on our individual uh, journeys here, so to give space to people to explore and to think how they, how they would do that. But I think we would do that as we have uh, certain expectations within our culture, which I think is the, which is the main point tonight. So I, uh, Gert Wilders, uh, they've just recently announced another uh, Draw Muhammad cartoon contest. And I want to come back to the logic of why, why they're doing that here in a minute, but um, uh, he has been contacted by a lot of Muslims. Now, uh, he's the one, again, who won the first contest, and he actually happens to be a former Muslim himself. 
And the interesting thing about, I'll just read you a small part of his comment here. He says, the, the one recurring word, he gets a lot of contact from Muslims about what he's doing. The one recurring word for, from the Muslims who wrote me, but who didn't threaten my life, was respect. And that I should respect Islam and not draw Muhammad. How about respect for me as an artist and my rights to express through my art what I think? I'm a former Muslim and the most peaceful comment I've gotten from Muslims is that I will burn in hell if I don't return to Islam. <laughs> okay, and he says, no, no Muslims, not even those in the West have written me to say, in essence, I may not like Muhammad cartoons, but I support your right to draw them. Bosch Faustin, yeah. You said your oh, I'm sorry. I'm reading Bosch Faustin. Yeah. Okay, so we'll have to take that. Yeah, I'm talking about Bosch Faustin. Yeah, he's the cartoonist. Why did I get them mixed up? Okay, so what I just read was from, uh, from Bosch Faustin. Thank you. Um, he says, no Muslims, not even those in the West, have written to me to say, in essence, I may not like Muhammad cartoons, but I support your right to draw them. If there's one issue that separates those who love freedom from everything else, it's free speech. Okay, so it's interesting because that's a um, that is a, a core value that we kind of take for granted, and uh, for many Muslims, it doesn't mean that no Muslim has been feeling that uh, they would support him in that, but no Muslim has told him that. So um, I'm going to tell you the results of some polls here in a few minutes too that will um, underscore some of the diversity, but some of the alarming uh, um, issues about the sentiments uh, um, that we should pay attention to. I think. Okay. So um, non-Muslim populations the world over right now, um, that's uh, maybe many of us, I don't know, we may have some Muslims in the, in the room, but are being trained uh, by Muslims, and not consciously or overtly, but I believe being trained, and you'll understand what I mean by this in a minute, to behave according to Islam's own definition of what that means. Okay, trained to behave. And I think that's the core. Uh, uh, point of these threats and the blasphemy laws and so forth. Uh, first, let's talk a little bit about the roots of liberty and justice for all. We did a bit. Okay, so when we talk about liberty and justice for all, we hold these truths to be self-evident. We've already said that. Uh, I've already mentioned that it's a biblical worldview. What does it contain? It contains the idea that truth exists, right? Secondly, it contains the idea that some truths are self-evident to those who look. Third, it's true that all people are created equal, according to that proposition. And all people have certain unalienable rights, and that these come from God, and that the partial list includes life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay? So, um, and we certainly know that for the first 90 years of our nation's history, this uh, we had the pre-existing condition. By the way, it was a pre-existing condition of slavery. It was not something that was created by the founders or endorsed by the founders. It was something that was dealt with by the founders, and that they created in this document, the, uh, they put in the document the seeds that would surely overcome it. So I think it's really, really important uh, as we're in this state of, you know, particularly with the millennials that we talked about and uh, other folks in our culture who have not really connected with our heritage as a country, that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, that we understand that the abolition of slavery, uh, civil rights, all the things, all the liberties that have come in this country have come, you know, through appeal to. Um, Abraham Lincoln appealed to what? He appealed to the Declaration of Independence, Martin Luther King did. Uh, all these things have come as a result of that. So uh, we don't say that medicine is bad because a doctor is a quack. We don't say that uh, 
you know, whatever, science is bad because some scientists tamper with the evidence. No, you, you chastise those scientists for doing bad things and then you work toward uh, further fulfilling the ideals that you claim to be at the root of your um, endeavor. Um, we don't say the FBI is rotten because a handful of people at the top, hypothetically speaking, happen to commit felonies uh, using the power of the agency. You know, you don't blame all the FBI by putting in, I mean, it would be crazy to put them all into retraining or anything like that, right? You would surely prosecute those folks who did that. Um, so, same thing, you know, we, we have worked hard as a country and we've endured a lot to secure the freedoms that we have. We fought a costly civil war, which I think is still the most costly war in human lives uh, in our nation's history. And um, so we have, and, and certainly, you know, look at the achievements we've had as a country. We've been to the moon, at least according to, to uh, most accounts, we've been to the moon. Uh, we've done, you know, prize, all the advancements in medicine and everything and so forth. And these are the, the results of the pursuit of truth. So it's something that we don't want to throw out too quickly. Okay. So I just want to throw this out there just to keep in your mind. Um, when you're in contact sports, you usually wear some sort of uh, um, protection or guard over your, uh, any areas that are, are more vulnerable. Or if you, somebody goes to hit you, what do you do? You kind of cover the, your, your weakest places or, or what they're going to hit, right? So um, I'm not going to connect the dots there, but think about that as, as we move forward. The Soviet Union, when um, they uh, were exi in, in existence, and I was just over there, as you know, it's bizarre. Red Square is actually, how many people here have been to Red Square? It's a lot smaller than I thought it would be. Was that, did anybody else have that experience? Yeah. It wasn't tiny, but it was smaller than I thought. But the Soviet Union didn't, didn't, um, didn't erect that, the Berlin Wall because the propaganda was true or because the amazing situation in their country was just so self-evident to everybody. They, they erected it because it was not true and it was not, you know, if they opened, took down that wall, people weren't going to be flocking in, they were going to be flocking out. So bear that in mind as well. Um, all right. So no human being has an inherent right to never be insulted or offended. That's a proposition I'm making. Um, how could, it, how could they? People uh, all take offense at different things. And so I think when you saw the title of the talk tonight, you thought, this is crazy what's going around, you know, many, many folks here. This is crazy what's going on around us in the world. How can you have the right not to be offended? You know, I could be offended by anything. You know, anybody could, you, know, you, would, ha you would be able to say literally nothing in this world if everybody, every freedom, um, people were protected from every offense. So I think a lot of folks haven't taken that to its logical conclusion, but, but we really need to. Um, okay, so what do you get when you have freedom of speech? You have uh, the possible malignment of truth. You have uh, possible messiness, but you have at least the ability to pursue it. Okay. So... In Islam, it is true that penalties against speech violations are selectively applied. So I'm going to read you one of these from the Pakistani Penal Code, which is pretty much in line with, uh, with classical Islam and the sources. Um, <coughs> Section 295C, which is passed in 1986, so relatively recent, says this in, um, in Urdu, I presume. But it says, whoever by words, either spoken or written, or by visible representation 
or by any imputation, innuendo, or insinuation, directly or indirectly, defiles the sacred name of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, and they say peace be upon him, shall be punished with death or imprisonment for life, and shall also be liable to fine. So where does that come from? It comes from comes from Sharia, and actually, uh, Sharia is uh, is a name that is given to something uh, that actually doesn't really exist in a single in a single whole. It's something. It's a word that's given to something. It means actually, it comes from the same word for one of the two words for for street or road. Sharia. It's the path. It's the, like the straight path that you're supposed to walk in. All right. Sharia means the straight path, and so uh, it is formulated out of. Uh, it's a legal uh, formulation that, that comes out of the Quran, comes out of the example of Muhammad as a prophet, comes out of the Hadith, which are the collections of the sayings that he, things that he said and did, approved of, disapproved of, what his followers approved of or disapproved of, what he allowed to you know, be done in his presence and so forth. It comes from the, um, to a certain extent, the commentaries. It comes from the historical texts and um, comes from the biography, uh, if I didn't mention that already, his, of his life. So, Sharia is this conglomeration of, uh, of stuff, and there are different schools of law in Islam. There are five major ones, uh, four, and then, and then a fifth one. That's, uh, and uh, these disagree on some points, but they do agree on the major points. And the major points include, for example, the fact that you are not to malign the Prophet uh, or uh, malign Islam. So I'm not going to go through all those things tonight, but what I am going to do is I'm going to go back to the biography of Muhammad and read you a couple of examples from his life that these things all can be traced back to. And, um, and when you look at uh, people like folks like Ibn Taymiyyah and others who uh, are tremendously popular in this area, this is what they're tracing, they're basing their example, they're, they're basing their um, decisions upon the example of Muhammad himself. So if you are interested in knowing about the actual book, there are a lot of, there's th probably hundreds, maybe thousands of biographies of Muhammad. This is the translation in English of the uh, earliest one that we have. It's uh, translated by, uh, it was written by Ibn Hisham. It was uh, a recension, a, a revision of it was made by, um, it was written by Ibn Ishaq. It was, a revision was made by uh, Ibn Hisham. And uh, it's a couple hundred years after Muhammad's death, but it's the earliest source that we have to his life. Okay? So how did Muhammad deal with uh, insults? I actually, a number of years ago, made my own handy list as I went through this of all the different, you know, uh, topical list of the different things. And I noticed uh, how, how Muhammad handled criticism. And I'm not going to read you all of them, but uh, a few key ones, a few key ones uh, are, will be serve the purpose of Understanding this. Okay. So in the early time in Muhammad's life, he lived in uh, Mecca. According to the tradition, he lived in Mecca and then he had to, uh, he was very weak. He was an orphan. He needed uh, protection of his family and so forth. And at one point he had to, um, after he met the angel and realized and was told by his wife that he was a prophet and started to get more revelations, um, and his community started to grow. He had more power uh, with more people behind him. And so they migrated up to Medina, and so the Quran is divided into uh, sections that are Meccan or Medinan, and the earlier sections tend to be um, 
a little bit more peaceful. And the later sections, the Medinan period of his life was more uh, violent. And this is just the way the history of his life went. And so the Quran reflects that as well. So there are examples of times in his life when he was patient in the face of criticism. And they were all in those earlier Meccan, um, for the most part, in, in the early Meccan period. People would make um, insults toward him. And the worst he would respond with would, uh, he would either show forbearance or he would uh, make a veiled threat to them. Uh, for example, uh, in this one case, uh, while they were discussing with him, the apostle came towards them and kissed the black stone. This is on the Kaaba. Then he passed them as he walked around the temple. As he passed by, they said some injurious things about him. This I could see from his expression. He went on. Uh, and as he passed them a second time, they attacked him similarly. This I could see from his expression. Then he passed the third time and they did the same. He stopped and said, will you listen to me, O Quraysh? By him who holds my life in his hand, I bring you slaughter. Again, at this time, this is all he said is the, uh, is the threat, of, threat of slaughter. So that was the first kind of indication of anything violent uh, that I noticed uh, in there. Well, it um, becomes a little bit more uh, strong later on. Uh, a man of Aslam who had a good memory um, told me that Abu Jahl passed by the apostle at Safa, insulted him and behaved most offensively. So this guy Hamza, who was a follower of Muhammad, went over and um, to this guy who had insulted Muhammad and started beating him uh, over the head. And without reading the, the entire quote there, uh, the biography says that uh, Hamza's uh, Islam was complete and he followed the apostles' commands of, of, the, of what he had done there. Um, there was a situation in which uh, Gabriel himself, the angel, came down and uh, actually killed five people who had insulted Muhammad. That wasn't him actually acting. Uh, the, one of the more well-known ones is that Muhammad was being ridiculed by a man and he had two singing girls who uh, composed poetry that were mocking of the uh, uh, Muslim. <coughs> Uh, women, and uh, Muhammad said to one of the folks who was near him, Abdullah uh, bin al-Maghith, um, he said, who will rid me of Ibn al-Ashraf? This is the guy who had made fun of him. And um, one of the guys said, I'll deal with him for you. Oh, apostle of God, I will kill him. He said, do so if you can. And the guy said, well, I'm going to have to, uh, in order to get close to him, I'm going to have to tell lies. And Muhammad said, well, okay, go ahead and tell lies. And so he did. And again, to make a long story short, he goes out and assassinates the guy um, and his two uh, singing girls. Um, and there are a couple of other uh, instances like that. So uh, without reading you all those, I, I want you to understand that this is... Uh, the, it's the insulting of Muhammad and how he dealt with insults that forms the example uh, after which um, uh, Muslims today, whether they realize it or not, it's become so much a part of the culture that a lot of, uh, I've yet to meet any um, Muslim person who's actually read this. Usually people will read a uh, more modern version of the biography. This is a little bit raw. I mean, if you read it, it's hard for anybody to, to go through it and, and not think there's, you know, there's something pretty violent and um, in some cases here. So most Muslims will not have interacted with this, but they have uh, inherited through the schools of law and so forth the idea that, um, that Muhammad needs to be defended and uh, with violence and his honor needs to be defended with violence. So what's going on here? 
this is the meat of what we're going to be what we'll be talking about. This is the source where where it comes from. Number two, you have an issue of uh, a cultural value, and that cultural value is honor and shame. And uh, most uh, Muslims, and not not only uh, Islamic culture, but many Eastern cultures, deal on a paradigm of reality that operates much more on the difference this continuum of honor and shame. So when something's not right with the world, you want to restore the honor of the situation rather than, uh, in our case, um, in, in American culture, tends to operate on this truth versus falsehood continuum. So truth is the most important thing, or at least at one time it was in our culture. Um, but there's still this idea that truth should is the highest thing to be pursued above all else. And uh, that's, that's a very uh, foreign concept uh, to many people who um, uh, who are inside, who are inside Islam. And I say many because I, again, I don't want to generalize everybody. There's all kinds of different, different people uh, within this. So you've got these two. You've got the honor shame, and you've got the, uh, you've got the sources. And there are a couple verses in the Quran too, which the commentators have um, almost entirely um, interpret to mean punishment in this world that should be administered at the hands of Muslims, if anyone, not just a Muslim, but if anybody uh, insults Muhammad or insults the Quran. Okay, um, there was a survey taken um, a couple of years ago, in 2015, and uh, this is, uh, should be interesting. It was taken within the United States of Muslims who are currently living in the United States. Uh, there's a diversity of opinions on some of these things, but I want to highlight some of them for you, and then we'll um, conclude with a couple of, uh, a couple of comments about, about these things. Um, first, they identified that they were Muslims and they were indeed living in the United States. And then they asked a series of questions. And um, among the questions were, if Sharia conflicts with the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights, which law should be considered supreme? If Sharia conflicts with the US Constitution and the Bill of Rights, which law should be considered supreme? Um, thankfully, 43% of the respondents said the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights should be supreme. 33% uh, said Sharia should be supreme if it conflicts. 17% said they didn't know, and 8% didn't answer. Another question said, should Muslims in the U.S. have their own courts or tribunals in America to apply Sharia law, or should they be subject to American laws and courts? <coughs> 39% of uh, the respondents said American courts only. One law for everybody in, in, in the country. 36% said they should be free to choose either, and 15% said Sharia courts only. Now notice that when they said be free to choose either, what is really being said there? What's really being said there? If I don't like the laws of the United States in any given situation, I should be free to not be bound by them, but to be judged by another so you combine those two together and you have 51% of those respondents who felt, uh, who felt that way. Um, another question was, quote, uh, whether you agree or disagree with the statement, I believe that violence against those that insult the Prophet Muhammad, the Quran, or Islamic faith is sometimes acceptable. 29% total, uh, uh, agreed, some strongly agreed and some somewhat agreed and 61% disagreed that violence is sometimes acceptable in that situation. 
Next, another question was, violence against Americans here in the United States can be justified as part of the global jihad. 25% agreed that it could be sometimes justified, and 64% disagreed. Do you think um, the use of violence in the United States is justified in order to make Sharia the law of the land of this country? 19% said yes, 66% said no, and 11% said they don't know. Um, all right, so there were, uh, there were further questions, and um, some of these were, would be American citizens, and obviously if, if you're uh, an American citizen, you have, um, you know, the, the, there's the diversity of opinion, and you know, this is the, the freedom of speech involves the freedom to believe and freedom of conscience to follow uh, these different ways. It ends, obviously, at the end of another person's nose. You don't have the right to lay a hand on another person, which is something that we seem to have lost in our nation uh, as well. But I want to bring this to a conclusion, and uh, sadly, I wish, wish I could have covered more, uh, more examples here. Sorry, excuse me a moment. So, we actually haven't talked about the issue of uh, about the question of Islamophobia and all these things too. So, what are what are these what are these trying to accomplish? The speech limitations and the speech codes. So we know that they exist here. We know they exist in Islamic culture. What was, uh, what was Muhammad doing with them? Well, think of the effect. Well, the effect in his life was that uh, people stopped uh, openly questioning him, and it gave the impression that he was a true prophet of God. And eventually people came into Islam, and he was obviously very successful in his conquest and his expansion and so forth. So that was the logic of what he was doing at his, in his time. And so um, consciously or not, you have uh, what you have happening when you have fear of Islamophobia. What is Islamophobia? It's a word that none of us wants to be labeled with, right? Nobody wants to be labeled with the word Islamophobia or being, being called an Islamophobe. And that's the intention of the word. It's to label you, to create a label that you, in fear, will self-censor your speech. Uh, you will not say things, uh, you'll, you'll treat with kid gloves uh, one particular subject, whereas you may speak quite openly and quite frankly and quite uh, critically of anything else. You're going to refrain from criticism in one particular area. Um, so, um, I, I don't want to overplay the intentionality of, of the, uh, when I say it's a tool of conquest, right? I don't want to overplay the intentionality. I by no means believe that, uh, that all or even most uh, Muslims uh, in our country uh, have this intention of, of doing this. But it is the effect of it, and it is the intention of some groups like uh, CARE and the Muslim Brotherhood and, and others, uh, I believe, to create these terms and to hammer them, hammer them, hammer them home, Islamophobia, um, hate, sp hate speech, hate uh, crime legislation, why should a crime be any worse if it's uh, motivated by one thing versus another? I mean, if you kill somebody, it should be wrong to do that any, regardless of the case. Well, the reason that you have the lot that um, being used is because it takes the, um, the guilt away from the person who's actually doing the act, and it sort of puts it on everybody who may have this sort of feeling in their heart, even if they would never commit a crime or would never, it, it places the guilt on more broadly across society. It also makes it just a generally bad thing to have a feeling in your heart of criti being critical of that particular group. So um, it's really nice for when you're going into conquest to have the resources and the ability and the strength and the, uh, and the uh, 
troops to be able to go and breach those walls and to get in there and to, and to um, conquer. Um, if you don't have those, uh, it's actually kind of nice if you could get your, somehow persuade the people that you're trying to conquer to uh, dismantle their defenses with their own hands. And um, so I would just propose uh, for your thought uh, this evening that that is one of the things that's being, uh, um, being done here with this. And so the question becomes, what then uh, should we do in this case? Number one, I would want to say something that we should not do. We should not uh, treat any people as if they are not uh, human or not fully uh, worthy of all the rights and uh, privileges of, uh, of what we say we believe, which is life, uh, uh, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, liberty and justice for all, and so forth. We should also not, obviously, it's horrible that I should even have to say it, but we should not... Uh, prejudge groups of people or you know, even make assumptions about what somebody might believe because a lot of people are um, kind of on a way to, you know, they, they may have different assumptions from what we might think. Okay, but the first thing I propose that we should, that we should do is understand the reason for all of these, for these calls uh, for limitations on speech, uh, the use of the word Islamophobia. To me, when somebody uses the term Islamophobia, it's a sign either of um, low intelligence <laughs> or of, uh, of some ulterior motive that is, that is really not good. So I think, you know, really to, this is a very informed group of people, but uh, to use language very intentionally. Avoid using these kind of terms that are not, are not helpful and that really accomplish, really are actually harmful to uh, free discourse in our country. And um, and then work to, uh, to preserve free speech. Uh, you know, people, folks like, uh, uh, like uh, Robert Spencer, uh, Gert Wilders, <laughs> this time, Bosch Faustin, uh, Pam Geller, and others who are doing these kind of things, I mean, I don't know what's in their hearts when they're doing the uh, drama homic contest and so forth, but uh, understand what it is that they are doing. Um, it's not really about provoking. It's the, what they're doing is they're carving out space for, for liberty and for free speech in this country. That's a really important function. They're, they're doing it uh, to a certain, uh, in, with the great risk to themselves. But if you've ever been, I just went out, my daughter just went out in our yard, in our garden, and we had this space where I carve out down by the stream on our property where we'd go, I would go down and study and uh, read books all day long and stuff like that, but I haven't been down there in, a, in about a year and the stuff is all kind of overgrown. And she said, I, Dad, I can't even get in there anymore. And it's amazing what can happen. You know, it's the same thing with liberty. If we don't continually, zealously guard uh, the space for free expression and free speech, it will uh, be encroached upon and um, it will disappear. All right, and then third, when it comes to um, the president, <coughs> uh, for example, or elected officials, um, we need to think before speaking. If, if um, the knee-jerk, uh, just one thing that came to my mind that happened recently is the uh, limitation on immigration that he put from certain countries, which um, it was uh, a lot of people who even defended him from the accusation of having done a Muslim ban uh, went out and said, it's not a Muslim ban, which actually it wasn't. But uh, I don't think that was the best way of answering that question, right? The statute, actually, as some of you I'm sure know, the president had plenary authority to uh, make limitations on immigration 
based on anything that he thought was relevant to the national security of the country. That's one of the particular powers of the presidency that he had. So hypothetically speaking, if he had done a Muslim ban, which he didn't, it would have been legal for him to do that. So, and I don't think it would have been wise for him to do that. But when we answer these things, I think it's important to speak, speak clearly and raise the question that I think a more productive way of answering that would have been, well, it wasn't a Muslim ban, but um, since you raised the subject, um, you know, maybe we have these results of these polls here. If somebody's wanting to come into this country, how about asking uh, some of these questions, do you think uh, which, that in a situation where Sharia conflicts with uh, the United States Constitution and Bill of Rights, which do you think should take precedence, right? If somebody answers that Sharia should take precedence, you know, there's no right to immigrate to the United States. So why are we in this situation right now where we're even having to have this conversation about free speech? We have a lot of people in this country, we used to ask these kind of questions about communism and the other, you know, Islam and communism actually are, have a similar, um, again, not all the people, but the, but, the, uh, uh, but the political ideology have a similar totalitarian mindset. So we need to start thinking again, in my view, about asking these kind of questions and welcoming people who want to come to the United States and join the melting pot and blend in and who admire and appreciate the, value, the values, the principles, the, uh, the moral base of our culture and uh, saying to other folks, uh, no, no thanks, um, try again when, you know, when you're willing to come and be, um, uh, live as a good neighbor along, alongside everybody else. I'm gonna end there. Um, thank you very much for being here tonight and I will take Questions? Is that right? Okay. In your survey of the five principles of Islamic Sheikh, um, have you found that all five schools put an equal score or a different score by the doctrine of massive abrogation in yeah. determining, uh, determining Sharia law? Uh, Nas Nasr is a I'm not, I'm not going to speak out of full knowledge here because I'm not a thick expert actually. Um, Nasq is a fairly well uh, accepted, it is a, is a universally accepted principle, but I'm not sure between the schools of law how it plays out and what emphasis, what the particularities of that are. And somebody correct, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Nasq is, the doctrine of abrogation is, is fairly established among the schools of law. I, yeah. You've done some reading in that, I believe, as well, right? Not on that specific. Yeah. Um, just to clear it to um, make uh, um, clear what the question was, there is a um, principle. So when I talked about the earlier and later stages of Muhammad's life, the reason this question is is relevant is that you have to know which one of those it has authority for uh, law. And the way you decide that, uh, the way that the uh, Muslim jurists have come settled upon to decide that, is that. If the Quran disagrees with itself, it, the Quran can cancel itself out. And, by the way, the Quran can cancel out earlier revelations. So if the Quran, for example, disagrees with the Bible or something like that, it would cancel out anything at any point at which it disagrees. In other words, God can have this, God has the prerogative to cancel earlier revelations. If, is that a fair description from what, from what you know as well? So that was, that was the nature of that, that question. Yes? My name is Jack Pagano. I run a TV network in Afghanistan. I've been there since 2007. Okay. 64 million viewers, mostly Pashtun, border of Pakistan, and, and uh, most of the tribal regions of Afghanistan. 
Yeah. And now I've been back and forth to Afghanistan. That's the one question they always ask. When is Terry Jones going to press for the Qurans? They view the Quran as their sacred honor. And they always ask me the question, when is he going to do it again? And I tell them he's in jail. He'll never do it. But it's, it's, it's uh, one of those unique questions. They don't ask me about other opportunities. They ask me about that incident. And it just sort of never comes. Well, what, what's your impression of why they're asking you that question? They're interested to find out if they're all Americans are like Terry Jones. So I'm explaining yeah. to them that he's one, one person. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so um, it's, it's a certainly a one of the most severe cultural disconnects there as to why anybody, why any country would allow something like that to happen. It is very, very important that we preserve the space for people to do that. I mean, he bought the Quran, it was his Quran uh, to do that, I presume. Um, it wasn't somebody else's Quran. Um, but, it, but so many people around the world and even, out, even in other Western countries do not understand why um, there should be the liberty to do something like that in a country like the United States. And even many Americans don't understand why there should be the, the liberty to do that. And again, I'm not a provocative person, and I wouldn't do something like that uh, myself. But there is, again, the way I view that is continuing to carve out that space. I don't know if there's a way to help uh, some uh, Pashtun folks in Afghanistan understand or even begin to understand that. That's maybe the rhetorical challenge of our, of our, of our time. We may not be able to do that. Um, but I understand it, and um, is that the best rhetorical strategy? I don't know, uh, but it's something that you can do in the United States of America, and that hopefully uh, the space will remain to do things like that as well. Again, not to be provocative. Any other question? Any, anybody have a question or a comment on that too? Feel free. mentioned the blasphemy laws, and I'm curious if you've studied those very much, it, but the question is, have you found any blasphemy laws that are kind of across the board fair, or all the ones that you've seen kind of one-sided, you know, you can't blaspheme Muhammad or the Quran, but have you found any that are more general and balanced? Yeah, no, uh, if I understand your question correctly, this is a very good question. Um, they the laws are all focused upon uh, Muhammad, protecting Muhammad and protecting the Quran. Um, protecting God, but I do know that some of the uh, legal opinions as I've been preparing for tonight don't place such a great emphasis on blasphemy against God because the view in that particular case was that God could protect himself, but Muhammad is no longer able to since he's not living. Uh, so. But to go beyond that, the Quran insults Jesus, for example. I mean, what bigger insult could you give than to say that God is only a man uh, from a Christian point of view, and if we're talking about points of view, which we are. Um, so there's a preservation of the ability to insult and the, the space is all is conceptualized within Islamic law as, as according to Islamist view. So um, 
if anybody's ever had uh, conversations with Muslims, and I have uh, many, many, many times, and wonderful people, and you know, some great conversations, and even sometimes, you know, folks love to talk even about these uh, things, really getting down to the heart of the matter. But um, it will be said that oh, we we uh, to be good Muslims, we have to respect Jesus, we have to respect the prophets, and. Um, Abraham and David, and it's, it's an, we can't be good Muslims if we don't do that. But what they're meaning by that is that we have to respect them according to what the Quran says about them, not according to what the Bible says about them or anything else. So, no, there's no protection against, uh, there's no punishment for blasphemy against uh, Jesus by saying he's not God. In fact, if there were, then the Quran would be in trouble. Um, one over here, and then, yes. Quite a bit. And I'm, my question is, are all, and that's a, a Wahhabi and Sunni type from, from uh, Saudi Arabia. The Noble Quran, yeah. Interpretation. Yeah. Are all Qurans that strongly against unbelievers? And, and then I asked the question if this is the most common Quran used in American schools or American uh, Islamic schools. Now, children are being raised with those thoughts. Uh, is that something that I should be fearful of? as they grow up with these, these ideas against uh, unbelievers. Uh, and so I, I think it's freedom of conscience does not exist in the Quranic yeah. thought yeah. pattern. So are all Qurans that strongly uh, worded? You mean that in the trans, so what you, what you read was a translation. And, uh, and I have that one on my shelf, among many others. And there are some others that are fairly popular in the United States as well, including, well, some of the ones that are not so popular. That there are, there's, a tra there's a feminist translation. There are a number of other sort of mainline popular translations and so forth. This one is a little bit stilted and, and awkward. But actually, I'm familiar with that translation. It's fairly faithful to, uh, as you can imagine, with any translation work, that you can be more literal or you can be more... <coughs> Figurative, or you can sometimes take liberties with the meanings and so forth, or even for an English-speaking audience, you can make smooth things out a little bit from what. But uh, I think that's uh, actually I don't use that translation much, but I haven't found any particular problem with it. My favorite translation is uh, this one here. It's Majid Fakri, and so there there are two actually. There's one by Arthur Droge, which is recently out, was more academic, and it's pretty good too. But I found this one to be very literal, uh, I'm comparing the Arabic to the English. But uh, in answer to your question, it's no, it's it's the stuff that's in there that you saw is is there. It's that's just the fact of the matter. And well, it's it's a yeah. If it's the, the the question is if it's if it's revelation from God, then you know then then that's then that's true, and Muslims believe that that's true. So that's going to be what will be informing their worldview. Um, sometimes in Arabic, but actually most Muslims in the world don't uh, don't read Arabic or understand Arabic. I had uh, as part of my work at Rice, I was teaching Arabic to other gra to uh, to graduate students, and one guy had won the Tajweed contest at his local mosque, which is the reading the recitation with the um, you know, intonation and so forth, and he won the top honor in that. And but when, so we read a verse, and I said, "Okay, now what does it mean?" He he, had, he didn't know what it meant. So um, <clears throat> the importance is actually for reading uh, the merit, the um, 
the, the benefit of the work is actually in the reading and the recitation and doing the prayers and so forth. It isn't really in the understanding. So maybe it's, um, maybe it's good in some cases that uh, some folks don't work that hard to understand it. I don't know. But yes. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about your forthcoming books? Sure. Uh, that are about yes. Um, I have I've been very slow to get my um, monograph out, but it has, uh, and, and my, in the meantime, my research is growing, so we've got uh, about 4,000 corrections now that I'm working with, so trying to keep those all funneled into a book and index them appropriately and get the photographs uh, all permissioned and all that kind of stuff is, is the big challenge there. But that's what that's going to be, discussion of the corrections in their whole, whole body of them. And then I have a smaller one that is going to be 20 examples of corrections in Quran manuscripts where I pick out uh, 20 of my favorites, uh, <laughs> just as uh, to give a feeling for people of what's going on in these manuscripts. And, uh, and the third one is uh, in just introduction to corrections in Quran manuscripts. It's somewhere in between those two. And I'm also working on a political book, which should be out in the next month or so. It's <laughs> pretty busy. Okay. Yes, thank you. Uh, I'm sure all Well, I, I agree with one of your conclusions, and that's the next call. I don't believe that your understanding of the Declaration of Independence is supported okay. by historical continuity. Okay. Two particularly egregious examples. About men, yeah? Yeah, about, uh, uh, and both of these are from the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of them is the Supreme Court upheld a requirement of an oath that you didn't believe in plural marriage or a vote in Utah. Uh -huh. And another one was in the late 19th century. We took the children of Indians, American Indians, uh -huh. uh, put them in boarding schools so they wouldn't learn Indian religion. Uh -huh. So this is just two examples, and I can find many, many more like this. Yeah. Which the understanding of, of the Declaration of Independence and the First Amendment uh, does not have the historical continuity that, uh, yeah. that, that makes our 20th century understanding continuous from the original. Uh -huh. And the first one was on the, the plural marriage. Cause I, I'm not familiar with that one, but I know that that was going on in Utah. But what was the nature of that? Well, there were five uh, Supreme Court polygamy cases. Okay. And one of them, they upheld an oath that the other one vote that you did not believe in polygamy. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, and then the Indian yeah. school was another. Thomas Jefferson, by the way, explicitly believed in freedom of religion for Muslims and Hindus. Yeah. But he apparently did not believe in freedom of religion for American Indians. Yeah. Well, and I think my point, and I don't disagree with you on that, but I, I, um, I think my point was that the, there was a variety of belief among the various signers of the Declaration, but I think the, uh, the principle was laid down there in, a, in general form. Um, well, maybe we can't read, can't be too firm on that, but I, I I, I believe that it was a general principle that we took quite a bit of time to live up to. And, by the way, there have been more than one Supreme Court decision that has been a, uh, far afoul of the Constitution uh, in our history. And a couple, you know, have been overturned and so forth. So, yes. Um, I'm sorry. Not to, I don't know who was next. But. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And also, we've spoken to senior jurists in Islam now to decide whether or not they accept. Can you repeat the 
uh, so the question was, uh, have I been able to discern um, by whom corrections were made in my work with manuscripts, when they were made, and then thirdly, have I spoken with uh, modern jurists to see whether they accept the corrections? I'll answer the third one first, and that is that um, the corrections in almost every case bring the manuscripts closer to the way the Quran is today. So that seems to be the trend, that you had some manuscripts that were at variance and they were at some point in time brought toward, not, not entirely into conformity, but toward conformity with what we have today. And so I don't think there would be any dispute with the current form of those manuscripts. Well, there might be because some of them are still out of conformity in uh, various ways. Uh, the way that that would be answered without boring everybody to death would, would be that um, <clears throat> there's, there was a feeling that the Quran was tr transmitted orally, primarily, and that secondarily it was written down in manuscripts. And so manuscripts have not been given a lot of attention for a long period of time because uh, it's been felt that they're just not that important. They weren't the primary means of transmission. So I think it's not entirely correct because if if oral transmission was so dominant, then why would not all the manuscripts be perfectly aligned? Because everybody had it memorized and they would write it down and it would be you know, the same thing. But, um, at any rate, there, and then thirdly, I don't think there's been the full extent of interaction with the work with the manuscripts yet. And so these questions might come up. And then lastly, about the <laughs> who made the corrections and when, yes, I've, sometimes you can see that the nib and the um, writing style and dimension of the, what's been written that's new is quite different and sometimes you can see that it looks like it was the original scribe so maybe they made a mistake as they were going along and then they erased it after the ink had dried and wrote it over again the right way and so those are the kind of judgments we have to make when we're looking at these things but short answer yes. uh, previously you mentioned that we should check emigrants and come in to see if coming into this country see if they go along with Sharia law but on the other hand I think these are questions that need to be wrestled with, and I don't know the exact way of, of doing policy, but <coughs> I think it's fair to at least ask the questions, and perhaps I mean, a lot of people are on social media these days, too. Not to say that you would look into anybody's social media, but if it comes to your attention that they, somebody has made a, you know, a, some subversive comment or, or uh, sympathy to a you know, radical group, or, I don't know. Actually, I'm not proposing that. I'm thinking, thinking out loud, but um, uh, I don't think you're going to have a perfect system, but I think you can have a better system than the one that we have, which is just, come on in. Uh, as far as I understand it. <laughs> Maybe it's not that way. So. Yeah, I have sort of two questions or points of discussion. Uh, I think that we're governed by the Constitution and the laws mm -hmm. and principles of the Declaration of Independence as a given. Mm -hmm. uh, so why are we even asking the question? Yeah. Uh, sampling of 4% of the population, whether they yeah. Yeah. Well, you would think that. Um, yeah. They're, they're, they're a small number of people. 
Yeah. That's why <coughs> you've seen that. No, uh, I wanted to raise with you your, your opening Thanks. remarks. Your opening remarks, you you spoke about free speech. Yeah. And of course, our free speech is not <coughs> limited. You know, there's the classic example you're not free to yell fire in a mm -hmm. theater. But there's a difference between an anonymous speech or personal attacks and discussion of ideas. Mm -hmm. In yeah. your work, there's a discussion of ideas. <coughs> yeah. which, and, but if you had used your work to insult Islam, I'm sure you would have received a lot of negative response. Yeah. Uh, we're free to insult one another. We hear a lot of it these days. Yeah. But it, it only, and how many attacks are not logical and, and they're emotional. Mm. Uh, and at least in my mind, they should be avoided. In, well, and there's, there's a question of should be avoided. Uh, I would agree with that generally with some of my interactions on uh, social media, which Claire has been able to witness as well. Too. A lot of people descend into ad hominem a lot, and it's not helpful. But the ability to uh, interact uh, with... Uh, <coughs> see, the problem is that when you... With, with some of the things that we're doing, that you would be saying that could be factual could be taken as uh, an insult uh, in... You know, in, in relation to these subjects. And so I think it's just better to err on the side of preserving that ability, obviously screaming file. The, the, the tendency is to try to blame the victim. So if, they, if you compare insulting uh, Muhammad or you know, saying whatever it is uh, about, uh, about him, whether it's based in the history or not, to inciting to religious hatred is that you've now blamed, found a way to blame the victim if somebody attacks you. Oh, well, you're, you know, it's, it's what you said that made me kill you. Well, okay, but I just said something and you killed me, you know, but it, those are disproportional. So I worked in human resources for a while and one of the things that we did there is that, you know, obviously there, we need to wind this up, don't we? Which is one more question. Okay. We need to. So. I basically want to repeat the last point that was made. I, I appreciated the fact that you advised us against using certain words like homophobia and, yeah. and some other things and advised us to defend speech. Yeah. Those are not contradictory. It's important yeah. to recognize that they're not contradictory. Thank you. What we should be allowed to do is different from what good manners or good judgment yeah. lead us uh, to do. Yeah, and it's also a shaping of the moral character of our culture, which is is lacking. So, when you use language precisely and uh, and productively, not everybody's going to do it. But if you, as a single person, <laughs> choose to speak in ways that are helpful, it's uh, it can help move things along. And that's a choice that every individual person has to make. Okay. Thank you very much.